0: of your word, study your word. We pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide and let your Holy Spirit lead and guide us in all ways and direct us in all ways. Um, Lord, some, some tough passages tonight that the enemy wants to use to confuse. Thank you, Lord, for being a spirit of truth. Lord, we pray against the father of lies and the twisting of scripture. And we say thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. When I was getting ready to do First John... 1 John 5 has a few passages here at the end, but really makes you stop and chew and think. And sometimes as a teacher, I absolutely love these passages, and sometimes as a teacher, I struggle with them. It's not that I struggle with the theology of them. It's not that I struggle with presenting it. I struggle because I know what the enemy does, and don't take this the wrong way. The enemy is really good at what he does, and what he does is he lies and he twists truth. And sometimes when we get to these passages, you see how the enemy can come in, and you see what he's done with false religions, false cults, of taking these lies and twisting truth. Tonight's one of those passages. Let's start in 1 John 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse 6. He, Jesus Christ, who came by water and blood. Now, you would think that would be straightforward enough, right? Water and blood. Do you know how many different ideas there are when it comes to the idea of water and blood? Read these before? Water refers to our baptism and our commun- taking of communion. Now, the problem with that is it just sounds like you started getting into a little bit of a works-based idea. That my baptism, my communion is what saved me. Now, you're saved by grace, by faith, through Jesus Christ. Okay, some people say water and blood, and they think it refers to the cross. If you remember in John 19, Jesus is on the cross, and then they, he was speared on the side to make sure that he was dead. And it said, "Outflowed the blood and the water. Okay, that makes sense a little bit. Some people believe the water and blood refers to His baptism and His blood on the cross. Okay, Jesus said He wanted to get baptized to be considered one with us as part of His public ministry. That makes sense to an extent. It also could just mean the simplicity of this, water and blood, born and died. Just that pure simplicity that Jesus came as a man and He also died, but yet was also God. That's the one I probably lean to the most because if you look at the reason why First John was written, if you remember way back when we started First John, we introduced this idea called Gnosticism. And we don't really struggle with Gnosticism today. But this was an idea that happened back when John was written. This idea that Jesus, the Messiah, were really kind of two different ideas. You had a human being named Jesus and the Messiah came upon him at his baptism and then left him on the cross. And so what they believed is this idea of Gnosticism is that you were really a spiritual being walking in a fleshly body. Now, the twisting of this is that, that whatever you did in the flesh then doesn't count. Because the only thing that matters is your spiritual body. They believed to the point that Jesus didn't touch the earth when he walked. He kind of floated for those three years and didn't leave any footprints. So if you're a big fan of footprints in the sand, Gnosticism would not go along with that. But it's this idea that whatever you do in the flesh didn't matter. So you can see how this gets twisted then. Well, if whatever I do in the flesh doesn't matter, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want. I'm going to see whoever I want. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. I'm going to drink whatever I want. I'm going to live whatever way I want because my spirit really loves God. It's just my flesh is weak. John is trying to say here no, 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 no. Jesus, Jesus Christ, water and blood. This guy was born, this guy died. And he was also God at the same time. And I believe that's so important to see that because this is the theme here for the rest of it. And he says in verse 6 the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Please remember this, and you hear me make this point a lot in this world that we live in where everybody is spewing out some idea of truth. There are three truths mentioned one is Jesus Christ is truth, God's Word is truth, and the Holy Spirit is truth. Those are the only three truths. So anything we do past who Jesus is, God's word, and the Holy Spirit is really just opinion, and that can be false very quickly. Stick to the scriptures, stick to the nature of Jesus Christ, and stick to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If I always give people God's word, prayed over and led by the Holy Spirit, proclaiming who Jesus Christ is, I'm not going to get in trouble. So when I start getting off the spirit of truth, God's word is truth, and Jesus Christ is truth, that it starts becoming a problem. We live in a world today where everybody likes to share their opinion. We have numerous news stations with opinions. You can leave your opinion at the bottom of any article you read online. Everybody has an opinion. How about your opinion being God's Word, led by the Spirit, proclaiming who Jesus Christ is? To stick to the truth. And that's what John is trying to say here. The Spirit bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, this is where the message takes a turn. Verse 7. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, I'm assuming some of you don't have uh, verse 7 in your Bibles, correct? So this is always kind of interesting. I love talking about the Bible. I just just absolutely love talking about the Bible. And on -on one-on-one conversations, that's a lot of fun. Trying to present it, sometimes teaching it, gets a little hairy. Because what happens is we have to get into these rules and reasons on why we do this and why we do that. And sometimes people just get lost. And sometimes I ask people, hey, what translation do you use? And they go, I don't know. Let me look. They go like that because they don't know. So I'm going to ask real quick just to kind of see. Who has the verse in it? Raise your hand. Do you you guys have verse 7? So if you have verse 7 in, you have New King James or King James. Am I correct? Okay. Who does not have the verse in? No one's going to admit Wow, this just shot down the whole teaching point. Let's just go home now. Have a good night. God bless. If you have King James or New King James, the verse is in there. If you have NLT, NIV, ESV, NASB, the verse is not in there. Because what happens is there's a lot of different translations. What's that? It has NIV. Does it have a little note with it? No. No. That's very interesting, because most of them have this. has New King James, King James, that has a little note with it? Yes, there you go. Mine says, the N-U-M, omit the words from in heaven, in verse 7, through on earth, in verse 8. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. We have to kind of talk about this a little bit. It's fun to talk about. But you have to remember here, we got to be careful that we don't get so sidetracked with this. If you've ever read NIV, NLT, ESV, NASB, you know that when you go through certain passages, certain translations do not have certain verses in there. Now, why is that? Let's just kind of make this as quick as we possibly can. The King James and the New King James use something called this Textus Receptus to define this and to translate off this. This idea of the received text. This was begun back in the 16th century by a guy. He took the Greek manuscripts that he could find. He took them and he put them into this idea of what it was supposed to be. And this became the backbone, the foundation of what we use as the King James. It's the New King James Version. Now, as time went on, he saw some errors that he had it in it and he made some corrections. And that's what basically became the go-to Greek text for about 300 years. Because that's what we had, the King James and the New King James. New King James came in the early 80s, but you had the King James version there. Now, what happened was, in the 1800s, you had these guys that kind of came and said, I think we can do better. So they came up, when they took all the Greek texts they could find, and they looked at them, they analyzed them, and they came up with something called the critical text. And they stopped and said, I think we should drop this one. I think we should drop this one. Because you've got to remember how this is. You have all these snippets of Greek New Testament. And they would have some in Greek, they would have some in Latin, and they would come and they would analyze each one and say, okay, which one do we think is more important? They were critical when they looked at it. So they gave certain weight to certain ones, certain ones they said, nope, we're not going to give them a lot of weight. And so they put these texts together, and they used that then as the backbone for NLT, NIV, ESV, and the uh, New American Standard Bible. Now, they used their New Testament from some Greek and some Latin. There was, like I said, two guys that went ahead and did that. And what has happened now is over the years, they kind of keep being critical about it. And they kind of keep analyzing it a little bit. And so as they kind of keep analyzing it a little bit, they make some little changes, etc. Like mine has a note that says the N-U and the M omit these words. Now, if you've never really studied out your Bible, you're like, what's the N-U? The N-U is this two Greek texts. It's Nestle, Allen, and the United Bible Society that are constantly kind of looking at this from a very academic point of view, making changes based on what they find, what they see, and what they understand. And the M is the majority text. And these guys stop and say, we don't think there's enough evidence for this verse to be in here. And so now you can see how sometimes these translations kind of become an issue and people get into arguments. What's the majority text? Well, it's just exactly what it says. It takes all the texts and every text gets a vote. So therefore, the majority wins. So if the majority say it's in there, then we think it should be in there. If the majority says it doesn't, they don't. The critical text goes back and says, well, this one's older. I think we should give more emphasis to this. We have a problem with this area with it. Maybe the majority leans more towards Greek than Latin. And it's all the stuff that kind of comes together. So what happens now is you get to verses like this, and a lot of people don't have that verse in their Bible. And they kind of wonder, why not? And next thing you know, people can get very, very passionate certain translations of the Bible to the point of that passion can become almost a legalism where they come and stop and they say unless you are reading this translation it is not God's word unless you are reading this translation I've even read books where they said unless you're reading this translation I don't even know if you can be saved from reading other translations and they kind of just go through these different things what I've studied on what I've read is this the low end is 90 the high end is 99 percent so somewhere between 90 to 99 percent of NIV is the same as basically King James New King James. Very similar. 90 to 99 percent just depends on how you kind of look at it and go from there. You have to remember when you look at some of these new texts that use stuff like the NLT, NIV, etc. They don't add anything to the Bible. They take things out. Now, if you think, okay, that's dangerous. You're taking things out. We're going to get to that. Whatever they're taking out is still in other places in the Bible. It's not like they're taking out this doctrine that all of a sudden now the doctrine falls apart. For example, in verse 7, the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the Father and these three are one. That's a great Trinity verse right there. That's a great Trinity verse. If everybody only had King James, new King James, right there's your best verse in the Bible on the Trinity. The problem is you go to somebody with certain other translations, and they say, yeah, that verse isn't in there, and this is why, and it becomes this big, long debate. It's a nice thing that we can prove the Trinity other than just having one verse, which we'll get to in just a little bit. So basically what it comes down to is this. If you're here and you got the King James or the New King James, yours came from something called the Received Text. And if you're here tonight and you got NLT, NIV, and one of those other ones, yours came from something called the Critical Text. 90 to 99% of it is about the same. It really is. The stuff that the other translations take out, you can still find those same doctrinal points in other verses in the Bible. And we just got to be careful that we don't allow something like that to become a legalism have to. You may have an opinion on what you feel is the best. I certainly have an opinion on what I feel is the best. There's certain translations I like. There's certain ones that I don't. I've studied it out. I've looked at it. These are the ones I go with. But I would never look at somebody and say, listen, unless you read my translation, you're not saved. Never, never look at somebody and say, you read that translation? Oh, I feel sorry for you. I think there's translations that are better than other ones. Key thing is making sure you get a translation. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, stay away from the paraphrases. Stay away from the message, stay away from the living Bible. You may say, oh, I really like those, I get a lot out of it. And right now you may have one you're slowly trying to cover it up so that no one sees that you're reading it. That's fine if you have it. Just remember it is a paraphrase. Not a translation. You may say, well, what's the difference? The difference is, if you're using a translation like one of these, it has been translated from the original Greek text there to get to what we have in English. If you have a paraphrase, they're not really worried about the translation. They're saying, this is the general meaning of it. So as you read through it, it may read a little easier, a little flower, but the problem is you're not getting that translation. And to really study the Bible, you want to get something that is a translation. So that's why we have to stop every now and then and kind of say, do we understand why certain verses are in it and certain verses aren't in it? This verse, for example, in verse 7, you can make a case for it either way. I've read some where they said, no, no, you can't find anything past the 14th century. And I got other ones that come and say, no, 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 listen, you can go all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century and find people quoting this and making reference to it. Once again, my doctrine of the Trinity is not based on one verse. There's enough other verses in the Bible to be able to do it. So if you're using King James, and New King James tonight, hey, those translators said there's enough evidence for this verse to be in here. And that's what we're reading through, and that's what we're going to teach on and study. So now, I'm going to open up here for any questions. Just make sure that it doesn't become a soapbox on why you feel your translation is the best Because that becomes a legalism we've got to be careful about. You may have one that you feel very strongly about, and hey, amen to that. But we've got to be careful that we don't turn it into, this is a have to, you have to use this one right here. So anybody have any quick questions about translation? Marcus. Two things, I think you've made the case for... ...these groups who scrutinize the scriptures and look for the continuity, et cetera. Who is represented by P and B... P and B... P and P and VG. Uh, VG is probably referring to the Latin Vulgate. Each each Bible has something P. I couldn't tell you. I'm assuming VG is Vulgate. Now, if your Bible's like mine, if you go to the front, I don't know if your Bible has this or not. There's a section called "How to Use This Reference Bible." And every single thing in here that you would ever read in the middle, it tells you what it's supposed to be. And so you can kind of go back to the beginning here and kind of see where it's talking about. Where it mentions, et cetera, like N-U, what that means, M means for majority, et cetera. And I know it sounds really, really boring, and I understand that. But if your Bible's like mine, you have something in the preface. That is how they translated this. And it goes through the whole format of what they did and why they did it, etc. And you may say, it feels like I'm reading a college course. It kind of is. But I believe it's important. I mean, when I was studying this out, this is the type of stuff I love. I really do. And I can get sucked into this stuff pretty quick. I really can't. The problem is what it really comes down to is I believe in the Trinity. And if verse 7 is in there, great. If verse 7 not in there, I still believe in the Trinity because there's nothing other verses to back it up. But I do believe as a pastor and as a teacher, I'm supposed to have a working knowledge of this and understand why it's in there and why some translations don't. If somebody comes up to me after the study tonight and says, hey, I got NIV, I got NLT, my verse isn't in there, why? If I sit there and say, mm, I don't know, um, I think it's important to have a working knowledge of this and understand. So check your um, what what's your references mean there for the letters i'm assuming vg would be vulgate p i wouldn't know what that one is so anybody else have a question here about anything here before we kind of move on with this so there you go you just got like a crash course of less than five minutes and you may have tuned out completely and i'm okay with that but just remember you're dealing with different greek translations and bring us to the different versions of the bible and that's why that type of stuff is there so now let's talk about this for a second let's just say okay verse seven It's in there. That's a great verse for the Trinity, folks. That's a great verse. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, it doesn't surprise me that this verse is attacked. Of course this verse is going to be attacked. We're not attacking verses where it says, And Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum. The enemy doesn't care about that verse. The enemy cares about this verse right here. Because you're going to have people show up at your door and tell you the Trinity is not real. You're going to have Jehovah Witnesses, you're going to have Mormons, you're going to have a bunch of different people there that are going to come and say, yeah, this isn't. And you're going to get out your Bible and say, yeah, but look at First John 3, 5, 7, and you're going to quote it to him. They're going to say, yeah, have you ever studied that out? And they're going to give you this long dissertation about Greek and et cetera and why it shouldn't be in there, et cetera, and all these other type of points. This is why it's important for us to know. There's a reason, once again, why Satan is attacking this verse. He is the father of lies, and he likes to twist truth. So let's remember that. So let's say the verse is there. Amen, great, it's wonderful. So if the verse isn't there, did we just lose the doctrine of the Trinity? No, not in any way whatsoever. First off, let's talk about what Trinity means. Break the word down. Trinity, tri, meaning three. The last part meaning unity. Three in unity. That's what the Trinity means. I got a great little picture I'm going to show you here. Dustin, can you put up? This is one of the best pictures I've ever found to kind of try to describe the Trinity. You can see how simple this is. The Father is God, Spirit is God, Son is God. Father is not Spirit, Spirit is not Son, Son is not Father. Now, that's pretty straightforward. Now, the problem with this is, people like to run this and twist this. Talk about a doctrinal thing that people get really worked up on. And so this idea of the Trinity, three that are one, but yet at the same time separate. Now, that's hard for our mind to grasp. And so what happens is this. We come up with all these different ideas. So I started making a list of the different ideas. Uh, You know uh, different illustrations of the Trinity. All righty. We got the egg. You know, we got the shell, the white, and the yolk. Uh, You got idea of like the apple. You got the skin, the flesh, and the seeds. I've also heard people try to describe uh, the Trinity as water, liquid, vapor, and ice. Uh, What other ones have we heard? Um, If I'm in a room and I have my son with me, my dad's in there, and if my grandpa was still living, my grandpa's there, that I could be a father, a son, and a grandson all at the same time, but yet be one person. I've also heard one times one times one equals one. Those are all neat. They really are. The, The problem with those is they all fall short in one way or another. And so what happens is if you go up to somebody and try to explain it that way, you can find a little bit of a hole in some of those there, you know, The egg, the shell, the white, and yolk are all parts of the egg. They're not the egg themselves. You can talk about the the apple, the skin, the flesh, and the seed. They're all parts of the apple, but they're not the apple themselves. You know, even liquid, you know, the idea of liquid, vapor, and ice are all forms of water. But, you know, from a scientific standpoint, they're all forms of water at separate times. You can make the case that you could briefly have all three at the same time type thing. you got to remember here, we're trying to explain God, And for some reason, this really bothers some people. And and maybe I'm naive. It's never bothered me. He's God. Romans 11 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor? I think it was Greg Laurie is the first one I heard said this. If God was so easy to grasp, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. Now, for some people, that causes a problem. But for me, I stop and I look at this and I say, okay, yeah, I get that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But at the same time, the Father is not the Spirit. There's a separation there. The Spirit is not the Son. There's a separation there. The Son's not the Father. And you can go back and think in times in the Bible, you think of like Jesus' baptism, where you have Christ getting baptized, the Holy Spirit as the, the dove, and you also see God the Father speaking from heaven. You see three separate things going on right there. But then you also go back and you think of like the big verse of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Yeah, but they're all one. That's the amazing part about this. And you see hints of the Trinity in different parts of the Bible. Think back to Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. And we can get into the Hebrew there a little bit of Elohim and this idea of a plural form. It's an amazing concept that God is one But yet, three distinct separate things. Father, Spirit, Son. And they all work together beautifully. Beautifully. In fact, to the point of where the Son says he'll submit to the Father. So much so where the Spirit says, I want to glorify the Son and point people towards the Father. They work together as one, but yet three separate. And that's what makes it so absolutely amazing. So verse 7 makes it clear. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Not only there, but we see it in many other places in the Bible as well. I think there's numerous references to this idea of Jesus being God and the Holy Spirit being God. Now, you may stop right now and say, well, what's the big deal? This is a really big deal, because this is why. If you take away the concept of the Trinity, and you take away the concept that Jesus is God, well, then, who is He? You know, it depends who you ask. Jehovah's Witnesses would say he's the first created being or whatever. Okay, If Jesus isn't God, then who died on the cross for my sins? If he's just a man, man can't take away my sins. I mean, I love you guys. And I could climb up on a cross and say, I'm dying for your sins. And I die, I'm not coming out of the grave three days later. I died for your sins, but it didn't do any good. The sacrifice wasn't accepted. The only way a sacrifice could be accepted by God is that it had to be a perfect sinless sacrifice. If it's not a perfect sinless sacrifice, then somebody has to pay the price for that person's sin. That's why Jesus has to be perfect and sinless. He has to be God. Also, the Bible makes it clear that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So our body is a temple, a temple of God. If my body is a temple of God, that means God must live inside of me. Well, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, so therefore the Holy Spirit must be God. If the Holy Spirit is not God, well, then who lives inside of me? So it's so important, this concept of the Trinity and understanding that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God. They are one, but yet at the same time, they have three distinct different roles here that are going on. So we're going to stop real quick. i got more verses on this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page, and we're not losing anybody yet here. Anybody got any quick uh, questions about this clarifying for going mark I, I, got a, a theme of mine. Um, I don't believe that it's a concept it's a reality because mm-hmm. we're all sitting here right now being taught the word of god and we're sitting in the presence of god right now Amen. separate they're all one but that's not a concept it's a reality oh i agree and our finite minds really cannot grasp that no you don't have to no because it's a reality <laughs> i understand what you're saying there you know when i say the word concept i don't mean that as a matter of doubt it is a reality obviously um and it goes back to the romans 11 passage how unsearchable are his ways i, I mean it really honestly is how unsearchable are his ways And that's the problem is I think sometimes what we do as human beings is we take away the element of faith. I I remember um, the passage where it says in Hebrews that by faith we believe that the world was created out of nothing. We can do a bunch of science to try to prove that, which I'm not against that apologetics of it, but ultimately you're going to believe in creation because of faith. Because you weren't there, I wasn't there. Same thing with the empty tomb in Christ on the cross. In faith I'm going to believe it, I didn't see it. I didn't see it there. And Mark is right. That is the reality of what we're talking about here is that this is real. And it's important to know and understand. And this is why this concept of the Trinity is constantly attacked by false cults and false religions. It constantly is. And we have to remember here this idea of jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, Verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We have mentioned this point before. We run into all these religions that claim to have a relationship with the Father. You can't have a relationship with the Father unless you have a relationship with the Son. You have to. And this is where the Trinity comes into this beautiful picture. Because for me to understand the Father, I understand the Father through the Son. For me to understand the Son, the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment and pointed me towards the Son. As He pointed me towards the Son, I understood my salvation in Christ. And now I have access to the Father. They all work together. If you take away the Trinity you got some major flaws going on here. Once again, who's living inside of me if it's not God? Who died on the cross for my sins if he's not God? And this is where the Trinity is so vitally important. Anybody else got any other questions here about anything before we move on? Bethany. Like you said, uh, nothing is attacked tax that doesn't mean anything. Right. And um, I've seen argued that Christianity is polytheism because, of this. Yeah. because they don't understand it. It means one. And, you know, with three and one, way don't But yet they're all God. Yeah, I know. And, and I and I get it. And I've had people sometimes come in and they are almost to that point of like the dog chasing its tail. And so much time and energy is, but I don't get it. I don't get it. And it's almost freeing for them to hear somebody say, you know what, I don't know if I completely get it, but I believe it. You know, I believe it. because Well, why do you believe it? Because the Bible teaches me it's true. And that's why I believe it. And I also believe that sometimes things are unsearchable to me and I fully don't grasp and understand. And I'm supposed to have a childlike, naive faith. And I have that and I'm okay with that. And for some people, they're not. And I only thing I can encourage, if you're sitting here tonight saying, I'm struggling with this, I'm really struggling, go home and pray about it. Lord, help me to understand this beautiful concept of how this works. I'm going to look up these verses that James referenced. I'm going to look these concepts up. Sorry, reality up, Mark. I'm going to look this reality up and understand it then better. But at the same time what happens to this is this. If you hear this and you stop and say ah oh, I can't it's too hard for me. The, the trinity the issue of the trinity is not keeping you then from it. It's it's something within your heart. Because really what our faith comes down to is it's all ultimately faith. Once again, I never saw Christ on the cross, I never saw the empty tomb, but I still believe it. I wasn't there in Genesis 1, but I still believe it. I'm accepting those truths. I'm accepting that reality. I'm accepting that in faith. This is the same thing. And I firmly believe this. When you really study this out and really come to a grasp of it, you get it. And I don't mean that in some super spiritual you stop and you say, Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm seeing how this puzzle comes together. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a really a beautiful picture. Yeah, Gavin. You mentioned you mentioned earlier he was 11-1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not so Right, And that's exactly what it is. It's believing, putting that into faith, seeing God work. What a beautiful picture it is. Beautiful picture it is. And like I said, you take away verse 7, it's still easy to prove that Jesus is God. It's still easy to prove the Holy Spirit is God. I I, I shared some passages about Jesus. I want to share one quick one about the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 5. You had um, Ananias and Sapphira, and they were lying about their gift to the church. And if you remember correctly, Peter came in and said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And he said, next verse, he goes, you did not lie to men, but you lied to God. So Peter was connecting Holy Spirit as God right there. Peter didn't have a problem with it. I mean, there's numerous passages about Jesus that we go, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's pretty straightforward. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. I mean, there's so many different references where the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus because he was claiming to be God. One of my favorite ones is in John 18 where he's in the garden and the soldiers come to arrest him. And Jesus says, who are you coming to get? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus goes, I am. And all the soldiers fall down. Now, why do they fall down? Do they all trip at the same time? No, because when Jesus said, I am... That was a moment where he was revealing, I am. Where does I am come from? Back to Exodus 3, where Moses said to the burning, who should I say that sent me? I am that I am. You know, it's, it's there. It's straightforward. It's nice to have this verse that ties it all in in one concise thing. But at the same time, too, the passages are there. It's, it's easy to see. It's great to see. And once again, it brings the whole salvation picture together. That this idea of the Holy Spirit, who is God, convicts me of my sin, points people towards Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross for my sin as the Son, and then he brings, gives me access to God the Father. It's a beautiful circle right there. Wonderful thing. So, if you have ever struggled with the concept of the Trinity, see, not good golly. If you have ever struggled, I, you know what, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. If you've ever struggled with the Trinity there, real and faith and truth, it's in God's word. And I hope that blesses you and helps you with that. So, any final uh, questions, anything about this before we move on? I'm going to try to finish up a few more verses here to get the full context. We good? Okay. Um, Verse 8, and there are three that bear witness on earth the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Once again, we're back to this idea of on earth now the Spirit, the water, and blood. The Holy Spirit is on the earth. He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is doing that. We're back to the water and blood. Once again, all those different ideas there Jesus' life, the water and blood, this idea of He was born, He died, the cross, baptism, communion there. You see these all coming together there and testifying as one real quick and I know we got to move quickly you don't need to turn there Romans 8:16 Romans 8:16 great verse just to know about the holy spirit testifying it says this the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god I love that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit is testifying that you are a child of God. You can see the logic here now. Nine, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. You have people that you believe and trust. If I come home tonight from church and Dawn says, you won't believe what happened, and she tells me, I believe her. I've lived with her for 22 years. I'm married to her. I believe her. I receive the witness of men. In our court system, we receive the witness of men. We believe it. Verse 9, John's saying, if you can accept the witness of man, you better be able to accept the witness of God. Because the witness of God is greater. That's such a simple point, but yet it's so deep. This is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. God is testifying of his son. So I I don't know if Jesus is God. Well, God thinks he's God. So I don't know why we're arguing it. Verse 10. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. Remember our Romans 8, 16. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given us of his son. Let's just be straightforward. We're not trying to be rude, but let's speak truth. You may run into some of these groups, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Muslims. You may work with them. You may have neighbors with them. And you say, these are really nice people. They are very nice people. But according to verse 10, they're making God a liar. Because what happens is they're taking away the deity of who Jesus Christ is. That's a problem. Because God says that he is God. God says, that's my son, and when are taking away the deity of Jesus, they're calling God a liar, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You want eternal life? You need to know Jesus. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's so straightforward. Verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We're kind of running out of time here. The assurance of salvation that you can have. The assurance you can have. To know that when you know who Jesus Christ is, you've been convicted of sin by the Spirit, you believe in the salvation through the Son, you have access to God the Father, you can confidently say, I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I'm saved in Christ Jesus through what he did for me on the cross. What a beautiful sense of peace that is. That you have the confidence and you know that. You can know you have eternal life. And, and I don't want to repeat a whole lot, but when we did uh, 1 John 3... Oh, it was right around verses 19 and 20. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to grab that message. We talked about how that that danger of, I don't know if I'm saved, not having the confidence in that. Oh, we want you to have the confidence in knowing who Jesus Christ is and knowing the confidence of that he died on the cross for your sins and you have salvation through him and through him alone. That's the beauty of peace that you can have. And when you have that peace, it changes everything. You can walk in a confidence in this world because you realize that you're more than a conqueror in Christ. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. The worst thing that can happen in this world is physical death which takes you right to eternity in heaven. So therefore, I walk in peace and joy because I know who Jesus is and for what Jesus has done for me. Amen. I think of what it says in Colossians 2.9 about Jesus. For in Him, for in Christ... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God dwells in who Jesus Christ is. And that's why we can have salvation. So, hey, it's almost 8 o'clock here, so we need to cut it short right there with that. Anybody have any final questions about anything before we close up here? I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Good? righty. next week I hope you will uh, come out. Hard to believe, uh, next Wednesday is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So we will stop our study in First John, and we will do a service of uh, communion, a service of worship, and a service of testimony of thanks to God. And I, and I thoroughly enjoy it. I look forward to it. We spend so much time asking God for things. It's nice to be able to have a service where we just say, God, I want to thank you and publicly praise you. For what you have done. you have a chance to share if you want. So I hope you'll come out and enjoy that. And be blessed by that. Which means we'll probably pick up 1 John 5 in two weeks. And probably finish up 1 John 5 then in two weeks as well. Hey, would you guys stand with me so we can pray? Lord, as we just come to you, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful for you being God. Help us to live it, Lord. And if we have the Son, we have the Father. And in you dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Thank you. Lord, help us to go out and live it. Not just talk about it, but to go out and live it. And we thank you and we praise you for what you've done and what you're doing. In your name we pray this. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.